hold your ears, folks. It's showtime. So, yeah, so, again, Anton notices the money's gone, but he knows, you know, he's, he's, he's acknowledging the trends now. He's getting it. It's all coming to him. Mm-hmm. Um, there's, <laughs> the next scene is so quick and so quirky, and I, I read about it afterwards, so now I understand why it was in there. I thought it was pure Cohen brothers, but it's not. Um, it's, a, it's a hitchhiking scene. He, <laughs> you see a guy, a driver, and he, uh-huh. and he turns his head to the passenger, and you don't even see who the passenger is, and he goes, you know, some, he just tells him about how dangerous it is to hitchhike. Mm-hmm. You know, even a man of your age, it could be dangerous. And we look at Llewellyn, he hitchhiked, you know, to get away. Mm-hmm. And it's like a 10-second scene, and then it's gone. You never see the guy again. No. Um, but in the book, it's an extended yeah. scene where Llewellyn picks up a hitchhiker and actually befriends the guy. Um, and there's a lot more dialogue between the two and quite a few scenes in the book, and the guy ends up being killed by Anton. Um, mm-hmm. I don't even think we learned the guy's name in the book, but they become kind of friends you know companions mm-hmm. for a trip uh so i guess they wanted to you know throw a nod to the those scenes in the book and did this little cohen-esque uh hitchhiking mm-hmm. see um we now <laughs> i love it so the next scene is and, and the title on my notes is carson wells meets the man who hires wells <laughs> mm-hmm. that's what uh so we're, we're going to meet woody harrelson the great woody harrelson um, he was born for this role. I mean, mm-hmm. you know, if anybody yeah. can play West Texas, it's Woody Harrelson, you know, uh, obviously as a native from that area and everything. And mm-hmm. we also meet the chameleon, uh, Stephen Root or Stephen Root, um, mm-hmm. the guy who can play any character <laughs> anywhere. I mean, yep. we're talking Milton from Office Space to, you know, the judge dodgeball. in Idiocracy, Dodgeball. Mm-hmm. Exactly. The, Bill, he is a chameleon and, and a, and a, and a brilliant chameleon at that yeah, he always exactly. he plays a really good southern so too. yeah he and his his name in the cast is the man who hires wells um so yeah so we meet carson wells yep. he's an ex-military guy um you know oh god natural cheers natural born killers it, 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 semi-pro true detective blah 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 we all yeah zombie land we we all know we all zombie know him, land. And we love him yep. um so yeah, it's funny. Even with St- with with Stephen Root, I, I I threw a couple in there, Office Space, Idiocracy, but then I put basically everything. He's got like two hundred and fifty six credits. <laughs> he really is. Yeah, like, exactly. He's almost exactly. like Samuel L. Jackson so, level. Of um, being and shit. So you know, Carson Wells is being hired by this man to take Anton out. Um, Carson Wells is an extremely confident man. <laughs> he sees mm-hmm. no problem in this. Um, he's being hired to do a job. You know, he's going to take the job. He's going to take care of the job. He's got a photographic memory. He's asked when the last time you saw Anton, November 28th last year. He knows the date exactly. Uh, it's his thing. Um, mm-hmm. You know, the man who hired, hires Wells asked him, so, well, you know him. How dangerous is he? <laughs> and I love Woody's responses. Compared to what? The bubonic plague? <laughs> and he ain't wrong. <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. I mean, he knows what he's dealing with. That's the thing. He knows... Anton's level of ruthlessness, yet he's still supremely confident that this is going to be just another job for him. Um, yeah, his charisma is like off the charts yes. for a character, which generally most of the people are more humbling. And I like his interaction with Stephen Root, where he says, "Did I say sit down?" And he says, 
No, you seem like the type of person that wouldn't want to waste a chair. <laughs> <laughs> yes, exactly. He's, he's exactly. got that char- charisma. About, or, or, I think at some point about he talks about charm, and Woody Harrelson stands up and he touches his chest and his butt and his thighs. He says, "I don't think charms had much to do with it." You know, <laughs> to yes. to that extent, he's got he's got that charisma, exactly. and that confidence. Yes, a great a great character. Um, that it, it would have been cool to have meant even more. And he, you know what? Maybe he is in the book. I, I definitely want to read the book now because of, of this episode. Um, so we now move on to the Eagle Pass Hotel, um, mm-hmm. which is really cool because in the sense that um, first, I, Alex mentioned that, yeah, there were scenes shot in Texas, but um, Las Vegas, New Mexico is where the bulk of the movie was filmed. And this hotel is the Plaza Hotel. In, in Las Vegas, New Mexico, not Nevada. Um, mm-hmm. So it's you have to say that after you can't say like, "Oh, I'm in Nashville, Oregon." Like you, you have yes. to say the second one when you're not in the prime. Exactly. Like, oh yeah, he lives up in Boston, yeah. Ohio. Like yeah. you have to say the second part when it's yes. not the Miami, Ohio. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, that's Miami, Miami, Ohio. Yeah. <laughs> that's yeah. the one that pisses yeah. me off. They're like, oh, he's from Miami. So, so Ohio. the reason I'm excited about this is because I'm going to pat myself on the back. All right, because. I saw the exterior of the Eagle Pass, and I said, I know that hotel, all right? There was a movie from the 90s called Vampires with James mm-hmm. Wood and one of the uh, one of the Baldwin brothers. I forget uh, which one. Um, it's a goofy movie based on a novel that I read, which I loved. And they used that hotel in that movie. And hmm. I wasn't sure, but I looked it up, and I was right. I'm like, fuck. I wish I could like live my life the way I lived this fucking movie knowledge because <laughs> I'd be a rich man and wouldn't have a care in the world. But you know, my life's a shit show. But I'm real good at this stuff, you know. Really good at this. Yeah. One. Can, so, can, as as a quick trivia, can either of you gents do you know the difference between a hotel and a motel? Go ahead. Hotels Absolutely. have interior yep. doors. Exactly. Motels so this have is, exterior this doors. Is the hotel. But yeah, I saw that, and I, I was really proud of that fact. Sorry, guys. I'm just patting myself. No, that was that. great. Um, yeah, so Llewellyn checks in. Um, he asks the clerk, you want all night? Yes, I am. Um, and he throws him some cash, and he says, look, you know, if, if, any, if any types walk in, um, you know, I need you to give me a call. You got to let me know, right? Um, so he is up in his room again. <laughs> He's laying in bed, same overhead shot, doesn't matter where he is, when he's in bed, it's this overhead shot. You can see he's not sleeping, and you know his, his habit of talking out loud, just hear mutter, just ain't no way. And he immediately bounces out of bed and uh, grabs the money case because he realizes he's being tracked. There's something in there because there's no way this guy could find him that easy. Um, although that's debatable because Anton's good. Um, but, you know, mm-hmm. this is helping. So... He, well, he doesn't. I don't think he knows exactly how. Like uh, Carson Wells knows he's good. Like Anton uh, Llewellyn is learning. Oh how yeah, yeah, good, yeah. He doesn't know. know. No, you're right. Absolutely, absolutely. Uh, so you know, he rifles around the case. He reaches down the sides again. Dump the fucking money out. You'll find it in a second. But he never <laughs> takes the money out of that damn case. But uh, you know, he goes down a couple of. Le- yeah. Yes, exactly. But apparently exactly. he knows how much money he um, could have counted it off screen and then put it back because it perfectly fits the amount, too. Yeah, that's true. You that's know, very true. Um, but he goes down a couple of layers and, you know, he's flipping through the, the, the stacks of bills and he sees some $1 bills and 
that's obviously weird in, in, in a case like that. So he pulls that stack of bills out and finds the transponder inside that stack. Um, and it's beeping steady. And, you know, me, I would have smashed it right away. But it, it, I understand why he didn't because immediately when he finds the transponder, we hear a ping out in the hallway. We hear one ping and we hear footsteps. So he already knows that he's fucked. So he doesn't have time. He's got to, you know, address the situation at hand. Um, he sees footsteps, you know, shadows. Oh, duh. Yep. Yes. Well, yeah, before yeah. that, he calls. I like the how you desk. hear the delay in Llewellyn's headset versus the time that you hear the ringer go off at yes. the front desk. Yes. Yeah. Because they're so close, they're right down the hall. Yep. yep. Yeah. Even that is yeah attention to detail. Yep. Uh, yeah. So he gets no answer. So he knows, you know, that that mm -hmm. uh, something's up. Um, he sees shadows of footsteps underneath, you know, through the crack of the bottom of the door. Um, he grabs. You can hear the tracker too. Yeah, exactly. You, you can, can hear, hear the that pings. VU meter. The pings are starting to to pick up mm -hmm. the, their pace, exactly. And um, he grabs his shotgun and he sits on the bed and he waits. And um, the whole door, the whole bottom of the door, gets blocked by a shadow. Uh, he's got the shotgun trained and he instantly gets hit in the chest with the bolt from the door because Anton's got his bag of tricks going. Um, now I probably yeah, would have hiked the other right to the window to begin with, but he, you know, again, he, as Alex just referenced, Llewellyn still doesn't know exactly what he's up against, so he's mm -hmm. figuring I'm going to get him. But I mean, even if he was going to get him, yeah. though, don't sit in the yes, you're right. in front of the door. What if he you're just right. shoots the door? I think it's a heat of the moment thing. Like stand off to the I side of the door. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, I mean, he looked he's always been, you know, the, sh the shotgun will do that for you, man. Like, if you had no yeah. shotgun... That's very true. You hide in the closet, but shotgun, you feel pretty confident. As he, yeah. as, as he mentioned... Yeah. I don't want to get shot with a shotgun. At the desk before this, any big swinging dick. You got a shotgun, you're a big swinging dick. So, mm -hmm. I, think, I think Eric's right about that. Um, mm -hmm. So, you know, when he, when he gets hit with the... the but the door lock it, the lock it, cylinder yeah. the lock cylinder it, it, it jars him for a second but then he lets loose with with both barrels um mm -hmm. and you know we don't know what happens but he cause he does that and then immediately heads out the window well technically oh duh. So yeah okay you're right because it's not a double barrel shotgun i just think yep. it's cool because he solves you know, it off so it's definitely a single cool, but you're right it is only one barrel so yep. hell no <laughs> You tell you're not from but I have shot state. a shotgun. It was a single barrel, but I have <laughs> shot one. Um, oh, I got these uh, these uh, double lot pellets. That are, like they're, they're cubes. They're not even like round. They're cubes. No, obviously pellets. not. I don't want to get shot with anything. Yeah, you don't want to get shot with those. <laughs> I don't want to get shot with a BB gun, even though that happened quite a bit when I was a kid. Um, so he he bolts for the window. Um, Anton gets off a couple of shots, but misses. He jumps down and lands on the street in front of the hotel. Um, I, I don't know if he's trying to throw Anton off the scent, but he goes back into the lobby of the hotel um, mm -hmm. to go to exit the back door through an alley. Um, he gets almost all the way down the alley, and Anton takes some shots from the window. And Now, he's got, Anton's got a, you know, a, a semi-automatic there. He's got an AR-15 or whatever, but um, he's taking shots, and... Uh, Llewellyn makes it around the corner but then realizes he took a shot to his side. Um, he, he got hit. And mm -hmm. he's bleeding pretty bad. Um, he, so he's around the corner. He's relatively safe for a second. And he notices a truck coming. 
just down the street. Um, he runs out and flags down the the pickup truck driver. Uh, runs around. He jumps in the dr- in the the truck and tells the driver, "I'm not going to hurt you." And no sooner the words come out of his mouth than Anton, you know, two shots the driver once in the neck and once in the head, and that driver's gone. Um, but again, he's. I, I want to remind that Anton is off screen. Right. From this, they we're one hour into it. They they don't share the screen in this movie. No, exactly. They're, they're very. This is the closest, and this is some of like the most intense like film that the Coen Brothers have done. Oh yeah, absolutely. It, they've mm-hmm. even said it's as close to an action movie as they'll ever do. Yep. Yep. So, um, Llewellyn yeah. being again the smart, smart survivalist that he is, he he bends down and and he's sort of driving the truck from the passenger seat. But what he's doing is he's driving the truck dr- down the street to fucking range uh, Anton to find out where Anton is shooting from. He's taking hits in that truck, mm-hmm. and they're they're basically going around the truck from the front to the side towards the back, so he knows where Anton is standing. He then crashes the truck into parked cars so that he can get out and hide behind a car. Uh, That allows him to lean behind the car and look, use a window as a reflection to see Anton coming. So, I mean, it's just such quick thinking, and he's so smart, you know, and it's it's very impressive for the character. Um, So Anton approaches the truck to check it out. And Llewellyn jumps out from behind and lays out around as Anton jumps behind some other cars. Uh, Llewellyn keeps firing as he walks towards where Anton was. Um, He gets to that point on the sidewalk and realizes Anton's gone, but he sees blood on the ground. So he knows he's hit him. He doesn't know where, he doesn't know how bad. There's a decent amount of blood on the ground, but Anton has retreated down an alley. Um... You know, Llewellyn has no interest at this point in pursuing him. He just needs to get away. So um, we got a quick scene jump where Llewellyn, I guess he's dumped the body of the pickup truck driver. He drives the truck to uh, the U.S.-Mexico border because the town they're in is right on the border there. Um, He's in bad shape. Llewellyn's in bad shape because of the wound on his side. Um, So he is going to walk across the U.S.-Mexico border. It's the easiest way to get across especially into Mexico, it's a lot easier to get in. Um, he comes up on what I put in my notes is yeah. he, he runs into three Brads. Cause <laughs> they're all fucking named Brad. You know they are. Three little Brads. shits. <laughs> you know, little fucking shits, right? Um, you, you get into a car accident, yeah, the one kid has them like three times. And it's, sort of, it's funny because that's sort of a bit of foreshadowing of, of a scene that takes place later with some young folks too uh, where he just keeps asking the same question. Um, Llewellyn offers 500 bucks for the one kid's coat, and then he gets the coat, gives him the 500, and then asks for the beer that one of them is carrying, too. The guy tries to negotiate, and Llewellyn just stares him down. <laughs> he just says, give him the beer. Um, so he takes, puts the coat on, basically to cover his wound so he doesn't look as conspicuous, and has the beer, and he staggers down you know, this, this walkway more. Um, and while he's still on the U.S. side, he looks over the fence. He's crossing a river. And uh, I guess that's the Rio Grande River, I would imagine. Yeah. And he climbs up on a fence, and he tosses the case over the fence into the weeds on the U.S. side of the river, uh, sort of to hide it because he can't carry it with him. Um, He staggers past the Mexican border guard who's half asleep. He raises the beer like, I'm having a good time, and the guard doesn't even wave him. He just basically puts his head back down (laughs) to nap Mm -hmm. and, and... 
Llewellyn ends up, um, you know, getting through. Um, we cut to what looks like Dawn in, in, in Mexico. Llewellyn is curled up on some steps to maybe a church or a building or whatever. And there's a mariachi band playing, which is, they're serenading him, which is kind of weird because it's Dawn. There's nobody on the street, but he looks like a gringo. So they're going to serenade him in hopes to get some money. Um, he offers them money to uh, take him to a hospital. He's like, Medico, Medico. And uh, mm-hmm. does anybody know what the mariachi's singing? I do. All right, lay it out. Um, the lyrics are, you wanted to fly without wings. You wanted to touch the sky. You wanted too much wealth. You wanted to play with fire. Yep. Which I, I, I would say that most people have come to agreements that that's like kind of a narration Hell on yeah. Llewellyn's path. Eric, what does that remind you of? Ooh. So, well, Ed, Ed's, Ed's story in Shaun of the Dead when he's trying to, when he's trying to calm uh, Shaun down. Oh, that's, yeah. You know, that's, and he, he basically tells the story of the entire movie in a, in a, in a 20 second line about the Bloody Mary and the, and, the, and the princess and the king and all that stuff. Yeah. That's it's a good the same comparison. Thing. Yeah. yeah. It's the same thing. It, it's basically a telling of the entire movie in, in one or two sentences. These uh, sneaky ass directors, man. Right? Ain't it great? Ain't it great? Um, so yeah. So all right. So you know, he he has to be taken to the hospital. Um, we now cut to Anton, who's also in bad shape. Uh, he is casing out a pharmacy, and I know you got some notes on this one, Alex. Laid out. I do. Yeah. So um, this is a, a piece I copied down. Uh, the Cohen brothers own a film production company called Mike Zoss Productions, located in New York City. Um, uh, it has been credited on their films from Oh Brother or Art Thou onwards. Um, it was named after Mike Zoss Drug, which is an independent pharmacy in St. Louis Park since 1950. Um, that was the brothers' beloved hangout when they were growing up in the Twin Cities, because they're from uh, that area. So... The name was also used for the pharmacy in No Country for Old Men. If you look at that scene, it'll say Mike Zoss. Um, so yeah. the Mike Zoss logo does, consists yeah. of a crayon drawing of a horse standing in the field of grass with its head turned around as it looks over its hindquarters, just like the dog in the beginning of the film. Ooh. Right. Yep. <laughs> so the the dog like part I figured out, but I, I, after I copied that excerpt here, I was like, oh crap! That's I I have always that dog looking over its back always kind of stood out as something because they definitely put it right in front of you. But I didn't I didn't know the part I knew about Mike Zoss. I didn't realize that it had a logo there, so I thought that was really cool. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. So Anton's casing out the Mike Zoss pharmacy, and he uh, he limps up badly, limps. Um, up to a car parked in front of the pharmacy, and he, and he quickly fashions a makeshift Molotov cocktail from the, uh, the car's gas tank. Um, he lights the rag on fire, and, um, at, and this is it's just a flawless plan in that sense, uh, in that he gets into the pharmacy, and the car, it blows up. I mean, it goes on fire, and it sort of explodes, not where it's sending shrapnel everywhere, but it just draws everyone's attention inside and outside of the pharmacy to the car which allows mm-hmm. him to casually and confidently walk right to the back to the pharmacy and just grab all the medical supplies he needs to treat his wounds. Um, mm-hmm. I, I just think it's so it's such a great, cool thing, you know, and that even in his state, he's cool, calm, and collected, you know? Yeah, he totally, knows exactly yeah. what he needs. Yep. 
Yeah, he doesn't do that classic trope of like frantically knocking yeah. every piece of shit <laughs> yeah, off the exactly. thing and then finally finding it, you know? Yeah, it's like he's worked at a pharmacy. Yep. Yeah. yeah. He, well, also it goes to his character, very yeah. methodical. Yes, exactly. Too. Methodical oh. and prepared, yep. Uh, so he gets the stuff he needs. We're now back at his motel room and... I just, I only have one sentence for this scene is Anton treats his wounds very graphically. Um, yeah. there's, this is the only way to describe it. There's obviously no dialogue, um, but yeah, he's got some, some huge wounds in his leg from the shotgun blast because, um, I mean, that's double aught, and who knows, maybe it's the cube uh, pellets like Joe <laughs> talked about, but uh, it did some damage. No, it makes total well, sense, you, man. It's like a square pig in a round hole but forced through, so it makes total sense, man. Um, I'll say, too, at this point in the movie, like, uh, Anton, this is the first time you see him vulnerable in any way. Yeah, mm. exactly. Um, because exactly. he comes across as, like, the Terminator, you know, yeah. for yeah. a good chunk of this movie. Yeah. Um, but although he's, he comes across as vulnerable, he's so good at fixing what's wrong that <laughs> it's not it's not even that vulnerable at this point. It's just like, okay, you can slow this, but you can't necessarily stop it. Yes, and I mean, it, it also it also goes to his revulsion of blood, he, you know, whether it's his or somebody else's, he doesn't like it. Um, but, you know, one thing about that, I couldn't find any, anything in the trivia about this, but I'll tell you what, the needles being used, they were injected for real. Somebody agreed, <laughs> whether it was whether it was, you know, Javier Bardem himself or a stunt person. There were, there was, those were no fake needles. When they stuck them in, because mm -hmm. you can see that happening with a fake needle. You'll see the needle go up into, yeah. the, into the tube. Mm -hmm. Now, that, that, those shit, that shit was real, okay? Um, it, might have been, it was probably prosthetics because the wounds were there too, but yeah. it was so realistically done. It was so well done. Um, so in any case, yeah, he treats his wounds as best he can so that he can get back on the road and uh, complete his mission because there's nothing going to stop him from that. Um, no, definitely. He's on. He's on. He's still on that mission. Yeah. And let's point out he. What's the thing he has to take off when he's treating himself? He's got to take off his boots. Yes. And it's the only time blood touches his boots. Yeah, exactly. Oh. When he takes the boot off, man, the blood just pours down. Yep. Exactly. Yep. He's kind of. He's got that tarp over there. He's all sweaty yes. and like like Eric had said. It kind of actually. He. This is the most human he yes. feels in the movie. I yep. think. And yeah. I also had a, another quick note here that um, you know, the viewers will notice that Anton has changed his pants after he cuts through the bloody pair. Um, when he had that shootout with Llewellyn at the hotel. Yeah. And, I, and and this stood out to me a little bit, and I wrote here that he could have kept with black pants on. I don't know how it is in the book, but instead he has on a pair of, like, burgundy or crimson pants. And it it, it just makes me think if that's supposed to represent something. You know, seeing yeah. as the Coen brothers, you know, they make everything for a reason. Yep. My thought is that it signifies the acceptance or change of pace that Anton isn't used to. And uh, Llewellyn's been the only person to see him yeah. to an extent mm -hmm. and still survive. And I'm just wondering, right. maybe there's something there I could be reading. No, I, yeah. And you know what? I'm, I, I'm absolutely going to read the book, and I'll let you know Like if it, if mm -hmm. it comes up in the book. Um, mm -hmm. So we now jump to the sheriff's office. It's the only time we actually see Ed Tom in his office, because every other time he's met Wendell, it's been in the diner. <laughs> um, so mm -hmm. he's in his office, and, and he's talking with his secretary, who informs him that you know the cars, the trucks that were found... Uh, throughout this carnage uh, are mostly registered dead people. Um, and, you know, that doesn't surprise Ed Tom. He knows this, this shenanigans going on. 
Um, she <laughs> this is the second part of the running joke. She drops the, the news that the DEA agent is heading back out again. Do you want to go meet him? He's heading out to the scene, and you know, and Ed Tom informs him, no, he, he doesn't want any part of that for whatever reason. And you know, I just think he's you know, it's definitely a Murtaugh uh, lethal weapon thing. I'm too old for this shit. Is the bottom line, you know, like he is he. Yeah, he has a, exactly. but he has a politeness about it where yes. they said, like, they invited you. He said, that's mighty cordial of him. Yeah, exactly. Essentially saying no. Right. But he's saying that that was a nice gesture on their behalf. And then subtext is, uh, hell no. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's just so well done. Um, so it's, it's great. Ed, Ed Tom lets the secretary know he's, he's going to head down to Odessa to talk to Carla Jean. And he asks her to let Loretta know. Because he's basically afraid to, <laughs> okay? He, he, you know, Lorette is the one person on earth who really frightens him, but he loves her. It's not like that. He just, he doesn't want to tell her, and he doesn't want to lie to her. Because um, he even says, or the secretary, she knows Ed Tom. You can tell she knows him and his ways. Because she asks, you want me to wait till you leave the building before I call? And he goes, yeah. Because, you know, then it's not, he almost, like, he says it's not a lie that way, you know? Because he doesn't want to lie to her, you know? Because she's asking him to stick around. Um, so this scene, I don't know if this scene is in the book, um, but again, it's so Cohen-esque in its comedy. Um, as Ed Tom is leaving the, the station, this flatbed truck with a tarp over the back of it goes flying around a corner, screeching tires around the corner. And we immediately, of course, we get our backs up. You know, our spidey senses are tingling like, oh, fuck, what's this going to be about? More Mexican cartel guys or whatever. Um, Ed Tom pulls the guy over and <laughs> this typical dumb, you know, redneck, there's no other way to put it. He gets out of the truck and, you know, he knows Ed Tom and Ed Tom knows him. Um, he, you know, Ed Tom from the start realized it's the fucking truck from the funeral parlor. Um, and the guy's transporting bodies, but he's, you know, not tied down right. Mm-hmm. So Ed Tom's just worried that bodies are going to start flying around his town is pretty much it. So, mm-hmm. uh, you know, the guy asked me if yeah, I know, right? <laughs> Y'all don't got it's, a van. Look, it's West Texas, man. Vanch, man. We got a flatbed. Mm-hmm. You know? Who's going to complain? Are they going to complain? No. <laughs> mm-hmm. So, uh, you know, he, the guy asks if, if Ed Tom's going to write him up. And no, he says, just go. You know? It just, it's a quick comic relief, you know, a, a, a stress reliever more than anything. Mm-hmm. And I love the way it's done. And, you know, if it's in the book, it makes as much sense as a stress reliever, you know? Yeah, it, it also makes me wonder if, because uh, he's not used to seeing that amount of carnage going on, again, being an old-timer, right. and seeing that bloodbath and them taking it away, it's kind of strange, new, and foreign to him. But also, there's a sense to me of, it's almost closer to a routine traffic stop of a casual friend, yeah, like the old-time sheriff type of thing, right. like, hey fix your head what you're doing i'm not arresting you get out of here but it's a it's still got almost like it feels like he needs to do a little bit of police work that he feels like he's got that control and it's a routine thing you know because he's seeing so much craziness right now he almost needs some semblance of a normality right it's a transition back to the good old days you're Mm -hmm. yeah you nailed it alex yeah um so we now cut to the hospital mexico uh llewellyn's he's laid up in bed in Who's sitting there but uh, Carson Wells? He's sitting bedside. Uh, so we haven't played a clip in a while because there hasn't been much dialogue. <laughs> so, you know, this is a long this is a long break. We went from 34 minutes in to an hour and 15 in. Um, so This good clip, though. Yeah, exactly. So, uh, Joe, roll this clip. This is the dialogue between Carson and, and Llewellyn. 
Buenos dias. I'm guessing this isn't the future you had pictured for yourself when you first clapped eyes on that money. Don't worry, I'm not the man who's after you. I know that. I've seen him. You've seen him? Man, you're not dead. Huh. What's this guy supposed to be, the ultimate badass? No, I don't think that's how I'd describe him. Well, how would you describe him? I guess I'd say he doesn't have a sense of humor. His name's Sugar. Sugar? Sugar. Anton Sugar. You know how he found you? Yeah, I know how he found me. It's called a transponder. I know what it's called. He won't find me again. Well, not that way. Not anyway. Took me about three hours. Yeah, well, I've been mobile. No. You don't understand. What do you do? I'm retired. What did you do? Welder. Settling, MIG, TIG? Any of it. If it can be welded, I can weld it. Cast iron? Yeah. I mean braze. I didn't say braze. Pop metal. What did I say? Were you in NAM? Yeah, I was in NAM. Hmm. So was I. So what does that make me, your buddy? Look, you gotta give me this money. I got no other reason to protect you. It's too late. I spent it. Got a million and a half on whores and whiskey and the rest of it just sort of blew it in. How do you know he's not on his way to Odessa? Why would he go to Odessa? Kill your wife. Maybe he's the one who needs to be worried about me. Me isn't. Yeah. You're not cut out for this. You're just a guy who happened to find those vehicles. I'm across the river at the Hotel Eagle. Carson Wells. Call me when you've had enough. I can even let you keep a little of the money. I was into cutting deals, why wouldn't I just deal with this guy, Sugar? Oh, no, no, you don't understand. You can't make a deal with him. Even if you gave him the money back, he'd still kill you just for inconveniencing him. He's a peculiar man. Might even say he has principles, principles that transcend money or drugs or anything like that. Not like you. <coughs> yeah, he's not even like me. No, you don't talk as much as you are getting points for that. Yeah, that's a great exchange. It's a great exchange between two great actors doing doing what they do. Um, mm -hmm. You know, it, it goes back to, to Alex's point earlier about uh, the fact that, you know, uh, Llewellyn has seen uh, Anton and he's still alive. Um, it impresses uh, Wells. There's no question about that in, in, in a small sense mm -hmm. because of that thing that, you know, he's shocked. A little bit. He hides it, but he's definitely impressed by that. Um, and it's just a cool exchange. So at the end there, Wells gives uh, Llewellyn his business card. You know, obviously he tells him where, where he's staying. Um, we now head to, uh, to Odessa where Ed Tom meets CJ. Uh, CJ. Carla Jean. Here we go. I'm reading my abbreviations. It's getting late. Um, you know, Ed Tom is trying to convince her 
to basically turn Llewellyn in to protect him, to save his life. You know, um, Etom knows it's the only chance that that Llewellyn's got, even if Llewellyn doesn't know it yet. And uh, you know, Carla Jean is still she's still supremely confident in in her man uh, and his ability to handle things. I mean, because she obviously doesn't understand what he's up against and who he's up against either, uh, even less so than Llewellyn does. So. <laughs> This comes up later in the, in the movie. Um, Ed Tom tells her the story of Charlie Walsh. Um, you know, he's a he's a slaughterhouse dude, um, and he talks about how Charlie had a bolt hanging up or a steer hanging up, and he's ready to take care of business. And the thing sort of woke up, and it's thrashing around. He's got his gun, and he takes a shot at the thing. And it grazes it because of the thrashing and the bullet ricochets around and hits him in the in the shoulder. And Charlie, to this day, can't lift his arm up to take his hat off. Um, it's kind of weird that he tells this story. Um, and it'll again, it'll come back in a, in a couple of scenes. But you know, he then describes Anton's weapon of choice without even realizing it. So, Joe, if you could roll that. Yeah. Of course, that slaughter steer is a lot different these days. Use an air gun, shoots out a little rod about that far into the brain, sucks right back in, animal never knows what hit him. Why are you telling me that, Sheriff? I don't know. My mind wanders. I mean, it's, it's again, it's interesting because, you know, it's hard to tell from that dialogue whether, again, whether Ed Tom realizes that he's putting two and two together or he's just using it as an anecdote to get Carla Jean to, you know, come to his way of thinking to help Llewellyn. Um, yeah, it almost seems like he hasn't made the, the connection yet, which is yeah, weird. Exactly. But then again... Yeah. Because he was asking right, yeah. about right. earlier. So but then it also does no fit the narrative movie. of, like, he feels like he's sort of, you know... I think the word he uses is outmatched. Yep. Like he's, you know. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's what it comes down to when he sums it up at the end. You know, my mind wanders. He knows he's at the end of the line. He knows it. He knows it's time. He's coming to that realization. And Alex, correct me. I'm, I'm trying to remember. He, he does talk. There is a scene where he talks about the fact that he thought it, it, this could happen later when he talks to his Uncle Ellis. So never mind. We'll wait. I think it's that's when it happens. Um mm -hmm. So, yeah, so, so we get that. Um, then we jump back to, to Carson Wells at the border. He's walking the border uh, bridge just as Llewellyn did, but he's heading back to the U.S. side now. And he's, he's obviously as smart a man as Anton and Llewellyn putting two and two together and, and following the clues and tracking and stuff. So, you know, he starts thinking about what Llewellyn could have did with the money. You know, he's obviously had to hide it uh, before he crossed the border. So... The logical thing is to, you know, toss it over the bridge. And, yeah, he Carson figures it out. And, uh, you know, he, he looks a couple of times. And then he looks down in the weeds and he sees the, the money. So, and I just made a note. We get that that just classic Woody Harrelson grin. I love that grin when he does it. Because he's, it's funny. He's He's got, like, he's got his lower jaw. He's got an underbite, sort of. And when he grins, it's just classic Woody. I absolutely love it. So, um, you know, he grins. I want to know where this. Yeah, I know. And, and it, and it made it through a whole nother movie in the snow. 
You know? <laughs> it's pretty. That's why they kept it in the. In the <laughs> yeah. That's why they kept that money in that case. Exactly. That thing is resilient. It's lead line, baby. No, actually, actually, the transponder wouldn't work. Um, yeah. So, uh, yeah, so we are now back at the Eagle Pass Hotel. Uh, you know, Carson Wells is heading back to his room. Carson Wells, it sounds like a football name. <laughs> <laughs> you know? Um, or a retired football player that's an announcer. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Um, are you ready for yeah. some football? No. All right, I'll stop. <laughs> oh, God. It's starting to get late. Anyway. Um, so Wells is back at the Eagle Pass. He's heading to his room. He's walking up the stairs. And who comes around the corner behind him but Anton? And it's not two steps up the stairs when Carson, like, I'm sure he shit himself because he knew who it was. Mm-hmm. Um, he stopped. He knew. Yeah, he stopped. He turns around, and, uh, and Anton, he actually smiles. He goes, hey, Carson, or hello, Carson. Yeah. Um, he actually smiles at him. You know, mm-hmm. and it's funny. I know it's hot because when he was walking up the stairs before he saw Anton, he's wiping his face. But I, whether it was makeup or props or, or whatever, he immediately turns into a fucking slops, you know, just a slop sweat guy mm-hmm. he's covered he's glistening okay because he is mm-hmm. so he's shitting his pants so much he's so he knows it's done I mean, he knows he, this is it you know mm-hmm. so they head up to his room and sit across from each other and you know they, they sit down for a chat and they're all all um all wells is trying to do is negotiate for his life he's offering anton money and and the money and you know they they're talking to it. Anton doesn't doesn't well yeah so so Wells says I know where the money is and Anton is like I know I know better I know where it will be <laughs> you know <laughs> and he ain't wrong you know what I mean and, and and so yeah the bottom line is through this whole dialogue we we just know that and and Carson knows he's dead you know he's fucked um so the phone rings and I want you to know that yeah, when I, I want you to know that it scared, scared the shit, shit out of out me of <laughs> when it rang. The first time I watched it this week, I shit, my, I shit myself because the thing rings. You know, you uh, anything happens, you're right. Well, I mean, at your, at your age. Spider I mean, curls across my hand, I shit myself. Uh, the minute hand on his watch moves too fast, he's like, yeah. oh, what was oh, that? Oh, my God. <laughs> oh, my God. Let, let, let's just say his, his Amazon Lord have mercy is a phrase pens. I utter all the time. No. The, I, I think that also, so they're having a back and forth exchange, and the phone, the phone ring reminds me similar of when they get to a pause. It reminds me of a similar manner when they were at the the trailer lodge when the bathroom flushes again yeah. because the dialogue had kind of finished then. Right. And the Coen brothers don't leave this awkwardness. There's this perfect amount of pause, perfect amount of back and forth. Yeah. Yep, yep. And, yeah, so the phone rings, and Anton looks at the phone, and then he looks back at, at Carson Wells, and he pulls the trigger. Boom. It's done. You see the arm, his arm, it's sort of a shot from behind Carson Wells in a chair. You can't really see him, but. You know, he, he he shoots it as the he times it with the phone, yes. so you don't so you don't hear it exactly. even though it's silence. Exactly. So, um, and then again, boots, boots, warning, boots. Um, yep. We see a puddle of blood advancing towards Anton's boots, and at the last second, he lifts them up and steps over them uh, because he doesn't want to get blood on his boots. And um, the phone is still ringing. So at this point, Anton steps over the blood and he answers the phone. And Joe, could you roll that clip, please?
Not in the sense that you mean. You need to come see me. Who is this? You know who it is. You need to talk to me. I don't need to talk to you. I think you do. Do you know where I'm going? Why would I care where you're going? I know where you are. Yeah, where am I? You're in the hospital across the river, but that's not where I'm going. Do you know where I'm going? Yeah, I know where you're going. All right. You know she won't be there. It doesn't make any difference where she is. So what are you going up there for? You know how this is gonna turn out, don't you? Nope. I think you do. So this is what I'll offer. You bring me the money and I'll let her go. Otherwise, she's accountable. The same as you. That's the best deal you're gonna get. I won't tell you you can save yourself because you can't. Yeah, I'm gonna bring you something, all right. I decided to make you a special project of mine. You ain't gonna have to come look for me at all. Yep. I don't know why, but listening to that right now versus watching it reminded me of the scene of when uh, Ricky, Bobby, and Sasha Baron <laughs> Cohen are having the argument about crepes. Same wow. intensity. Yeah, same intensity, yes. Same yeah. stakes. Everything. Just say it, or I'm yeah. gonna break your arm. <laughs> Same I'm not stakes. gonna say it. I don't know why. <laughs> those are those little pancakes they sell at the mall that I like, right? <laughs> those are good. Yeah. I'm not gonna say it though. Yep. I don't, okay. I don't know why. I just listening uh, to those. Yeah, I mean it's an intense that. conversation because you still have, you know, this this face off because Llewellyn doesn't still doesn't fully appreciate what he's up against, but. He is capable. I mean, he's proved he's a capable man. He's more than capable because he's kept up step for step with, with Anton. So, you know, in his eyes, now Anton just directly threatened the love of his life. So he's going to go on the offensive. Um, when, the, when they were doing that scene, too, you see um, Llewellyn as it isn't even facing towards the camera. He's actually, they did a take where his, he was facing away and his head was like on the wall with the, yes. the phone up to his ear. Yep. When they were doing that, Josh Brolin, um, I guess Antoine wasn't, or, or Javier Bardem wasn't on the other, like they have yeah. the recorded yeah. thing of it, and he was just doing the lines, and Joshua said something like, he felt really good about that last take, and the Coen brothers were like, but, like you should try it with uh, the earpiece that has the recordings of Anton, and you can respond to that instead. He's like, I think we got the take and the Coen brothers are like, uh, uh, let's try another one, you know, yeah. kind of like, like they know when it yeah, is and when right, it isn't, right. you know? Yep. That's cool. That's cool. Yeah. And they, and they, I like that they stood, they, 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 they kept with the one cause Anton's like directly at the camera for the most part in this. And Llewellyn is literally like <laughs> the antithesis of like working for the camera. Right. He's turned away. His head is down. Exactly. He's kind of sulking a little against bit. the wall. Yeah. Yep, yeah. Yep, yeah. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, it's it's obviously another great dialogue scene uh, in a movie that mm -hmm. doesn't have that many. Uh, so, 
they, and they talk to each other, but again, as I mentioned, Eric, they don't share the screen. Nope. Yeah. Like they're not in yeah. the same. They're not. They they're at the same place because you hear him slam it, and uh, Anton looks over his shoulder because he hears it ringing out. Right. You know, he says that he's across the river, but looking back, you can tell he's still at the, he's at the eagle. Yeah. Um, yep. But yeah, again, they're 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 talking and they're having an exchange, but they're not sharing the screen, and we're an hour and a half into this movie. Yeah. Yeah. You know. Yep. And 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 Ed Tom's nowhere to be found because he's at the tail end of this cat and mouse, and again they don't share the screen. Right, right. Um, which is, yeah. You know. So speaking of Ed Tom, we're back at the diner, uh, which is police headquarters mm-hmm. in this town. Um, <laughs> Wendell and Ed Tom are dis- or you know they're sitting there they're discussing the case, uh, but it basically evolves into a life lesson uh, that Ed is providing for Wendell, basically just about how fucked up the world is. Um, he tells a story, if I remember correctly, there you know, there were some people that were I don't know if they were human trafficking or something. They were burying bodies in the backyard and no one mm-hmm. ever no one in the neighborhood noticed a damn thing until one guy came out of the fucking house naked with a dog collar on. Just a dog collar on. You know, on, and then yeah. like Ed Tom knows they were things are so fucked up at this yeah. point that people don't notice bodies buried in the backyard, but they notice a guy in a dog collar. Uh-huh. You know. Yeah, he says something along the lines of like they would cash their social security checks. Right. You know, he's like he's like you can't make stuff up like yeah. that. Right. Exactly. You know? So, you know, yeah, he's just he's just offering life experience to to Wendell. Um because again, he's prepared at this point. He he knows the the end is near in one way or another for him and he wants Wendell to be the best he can be. Um Yeah. Wendell does like he he reads something in the story. He's telling something in the story to Wendell. Ed Tom's telling it to Wendell and at one point, Wendell kind of chuckles, thinking it was more of a comedic yes. re- delivery. And Ed Tom looks up at him through his glasses, you know, where you have to yeah. lift your head up because the glasses are so far down your nose. Yeah. He looks at it, he's like, hmm, I laugh sometimes to myself, too. Yeah, I know. You know, kind of like a lot of the joy is gone. And I'll tell you what, trying. there isn't an actor on the planet who does that look better than, than him. Yeah. There isn't. <laughs> the looking up through it. Tommy Lee Jones, so man. He, he's, he's, that's almost like uh, who, who's... Um, Damn it! Who does the pointing? Who points? Oh, Harrison Ford points oh, at Harrison everything. Oh, Harrison Ford, yeah. yeah. Tommy Lee Jones does yep. that look in every movie he's ever in. Like, <laughs> and he does it so well. So, yeah, good, good point. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. So we are we are now at the border again. Uh, uh, Llewellyn is trying to get back into the U.S. He's obviously got no ID. Um, he's dressed in a in a in a friggin' robe. <laughs> okay. Uh, you know, a hospital. But he's got his boots on. Yeah, still. he's got his boots, but he's got nothing else. Um, so he, he steps up to the U.S. border booth, and, you know, I just made a quick note. that I love this border agent because he's, like, such a stereotype. And he's uh-huh. basically doing, if you saw the movie Live and Let Die, he's doing uh, Sheriff J.W. Pepper's impre- impression, his best J.W. Pepper impression of just the southern redneck sheriff. Um, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, they get into a conversation, and um, you know, he asked, him if he, he asked uh, Llewellyn if he's in the military. And then he asked him some questions about his unit and how when he was there and stuff. And mm-hmm. that's good enough for the border guard. Um, mm-hmm. He not only lets him in, but he, he gets a ride for uh, Llewellyn. Mm-hmm. Um, so the ride is to the boot store. Boots. Boots. Because mm-hmm. um, he needs... He he needs stuff. <laughs> everything but... He needs everything, everything but the boots. It, yeah. Just, he walks in. Yeah. I, I, lo- I love the clerk when he yeah. comes in and he says... Just looks at him up and down, but he says, how are those Larrys holding yeah. up? 
Well, they're like fine. they're they're great. I I, I need yeah. the re- I need everything I need else. Everything else. <laughs> he goes, you get many people yeah. coming here with no clothes on. Is that unusual? He goes, yeah. no, yeah, that's unusual. <laughs> no, sir, it's quite unusual. Yeah, yeah, but just so dead, so like dry, so like yeah, it's unusual, uh-huh. but I'm not affected by it. You know, um, yeah, just such great Cohen brother stuff. Yeah. Um, we are now at the bus station, and uh, Llewellyn is calling uh, Mama's house to talk to Carla Jean. Uh, Mama's not having any of it. <laughs> she already she already didn't like Llewellyn, and now she hates him. Um, it gets they go back and forth, um, and it, it gets to the point where Carla Jean just takes the phone from her mom. She she knows she needs to talk to Llewellyn, and um, she is so in sync with him that she knows he's hurt. She says, "You're hurt, aren't you?" And he's like, how could you tell? I could hear it in your voice because the connection is so deep between these two. Um, you know, he has a plan. They're going to meet in El Paso so that he can give her the money and get her on a plane out of El Paso or out of Texas because um, that will allow him to focus on Anton and, you know, take the mo- the distraction of the money away from Anton. That's his thinking anyway. Um, so he he describes that to her. Um so now we are back um, in the building with the missing floor. I don't know if we mentioned that the first time around. but <laughs> No, he did Yeah, so yeah, Carson says, Wells, yeah, he goes, you know, I noticed something. The building's missing a floor. <laughs> yeah, I counted, I counted it from the counted street. You're missing one. Missing a floor, yeah. and, the, and the man who hired Wells says, yeah, we'll look into that. <laughs> we'll look into that. <laughs> and, of course, it's the whole 13th floor thing. A lot of skyscrapers yeah. don't have a 13th floor. Uh, so we are, yeah. yeah. Well, actually, wouldn't well, it, it goes from twelve to fourteen? Yeah, in numbers, you're right. Then? You're right. Well, that's what he means. He counted so it from it the would street. Look like he counted it counted thirteen floors, floors but it actually, it, the elevator said fourteen, or however many you know there were. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. No, that's all right. Mm-hmm. Oh, okay. So uh, yeah. So again. actually, because I was thinking about that earlier. Wasn't right. Mm-hmm. If you're on the fourteenth, no, exactly. Floor, you know but yeah, counted it from the street. There's only thirteen. So yeah. Yeah. I, I did hear like that at yes. some point in time they actually would build a, a false floor like a like a like a, yeah. a couple feet yeah like in Manhattan floor, that would be the thirteenth floor most of the old older buildings you go into don't have a thirteenth floor but that's sort of been like squashed now like new skyscrapers they just have the floors they don't leave it out you know hmm. you think they must have realized like, that 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 means nothing no exactly <laughs> it's a number exactly <laughs> exactly. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, thank for that. No, I was going to say he made thirteen. Mean you made thirteen cool again. <laughs> oh. <laughs> oh. Uh huh. Yeah. You just and you're he just won me two Super Bowls. Quarterback ever was he won me. Manning. He won me two Super Bowls against <laughs> He's not even the good Manning. nightmare team. And what did your boy do? <laughs> Yeah, yeah he true. also kept he Very also good. kept the Dolphins the only perfect team. Um, all right, so we're back at the building <laughs> that's missing a floor, and we got a clip, so we're gonna roll it. This is uh this is an Alex request. Where are you? 
Nobody. Accounting. He gave the Mexicans a receiver. He feels... He felt that the more people looking... That's foolish. You pick the one right tool. I see. You going to shoot me? That depends. <laughs> Do you see me? Uh, um, first, listening to that, the gurgling noises from the man who hired Wells are hideously horrifying. Like yeah. you don't, it's like you just said, Joe, it's like listening instead yeah. of watching. Wow. It's gross. <laughs> the, the, yeah. <laughs> it's like ASMR for RJ from Just Surprise so, Me. So did you gents notice that uh, there was actually some, a bit of music there as well before he uh, punches out that lock cylinder? Um, there's also a nice tracking shot that follows, surprise, surprise, the boots of Anton. So you'll see him walking down that corridor, um, and there's just a nice tracking shot with his boots, which I believe actually when I was watching, uh, they, um, I was watching a uh, clip and the people that were handling, uh, wardrobe and stuff, they said that they had a, like, they like custom made those boots and everything for him, which is Yeah, really I cool. saw that. Yep. Yeah. They were made specifically for him. Yeah. Really, really cool. I also, I, I really like the where he says to the guy when he asks, "Are you going to shoot me?" He says, "That depends. Do you see me?" And we had talked about like essentially the theme is anybody that sees him dies, with the exception yep. with the exception of the uh, gas station clerk who got that chance coin and yeah. the um, the receptionist lady at uh, the trailer park. Yeah. Now both times though. I would say neither of those people witnessed Anton in a violent manner. Kind of like yes. if you saw me do something, you're going to be done. Whereas no, those, that's true. Those other two people survived based on chance, yeah. and um, they really? didn't w witness. You know, kind of like, hey, I saw you do that bad thing. Well, you're gone too. Yeah, you know. Exactly. So it, it, it's exactly. just it, it, it's a good, it's a good scene, you know. Seems yeah. to be that like if you annoy Anton, you've got a fifty-fifty shot, right? Because then he'll <laughs> yeah. use the coin, right? Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. 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 If you try to big dick him, you might live. <laughs> <laughs> yep. All right. So we are we are now watching. <laughs> this is a great scene too. Uh, Carla Jean and her, and her mama are in the back of the uh, cab heading to the bus station, and Carla Jean's mama is just talking nonstop. She is complaining about. Llewellyn, she's complaining about having to go to El Paso. Do you know how many people I know in El Paso? She's asking a cab driver, no, ma'am. And she just holds up her hand, a big zero. <laughs> That's how many. Anyone. She's just complaining about life in general. You know, she's did, did she get a name in that? Well, her name is, her last name is Krasik. I think it's Alice on the Tombstone. Oops. Spoiler, folks. <laughs> on the Tombstone later in the movie here. Uh, I forget her first name. It could have been Alice. Um, nah. but I, I was thinking her name was that bitch Carol Baskin. <laughs> <laughs> she could be. Um, but no, it's she funny. Even in the cat, if you look at the IMDb cast list, she's just listed as, as Carla Jean's mama or, mo yeah, or mother. Yeah, that's what I was thinking. 
But her, her, I know her last name is Krasik. I just can't remember the first name on the tombstone. But um, So they arrive at the bus station. And, oh, before that, actually, we noticed through the back window that they're being followed by the, the cartel guys, uh, by a car full of with three of the cartel guys. Mm-hmm. Um, they get to the station, and they're unloading the bags. And one of the, one of the, the cartel guys comes over, and he's, he's just trying to you know, basically get information and get himself in there. But he offers to carry Mama's bags for her. And she's so taken back. Oh, there's one nice person in El Paso. But then she's just got to drop the comment. And I'll say it again. Her comment to him, it's, it's not often you see a Mexican in a suit. Yeah. <laughs> like, oh, mama, you disappoint us. You really do. Um, now, that know. actress who plays the mother, she was in uh, Donnie Darko. Yes. Um, she's in a lot that of famous stuff. line yeah. that I, I sometimes doubt your commitment to sparkle motion <laughs> yeah exactly yes yeah she's been in so many great she's had so many great roles like those character roles in, in movies and I, I'm, I'm embarrassed to not know her name I really should because I do respect our craft because she's really good at playing that that type of person and uh, she's not much older than, than than the rest of them in that movie she had, she had a wig on and stuff to play that part um, uh, Beth Grant yeah, yeah, there you go. There you go. But yeah, she's done that in so many TV shows and movies. She's so good at it. Um, so Carla Jean gets into the bus stop and, and she calls uh, Ed Tom because she knows it's time. Uh, she calls Ed Tom to ask first, and this goes back to the to the Charlie Wall story. Uh, the first thing she asked him on the phone is, is is if that Charlie Wall story is true. And she doesn't even say his name. Like he called him Charlie Walsh. When in, in the restaurant when they were talking, she calls him something else, and then Ed Tom calls him a different last name altogether. So this guy's got three different last names, um, and it turns out that you know his answer to that is, you know, I I couldn't swear to every detail, but it's certainly true that it's a story. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, you know, so it's such a great one. And then yeah, Carla Jean just buckles and just, you know, please help Llewellyn please because we're we're in over our heads here so um so apparently the scene we're going to talk about now is not in the book um it's one of the scenes that was added or not not at least not in the book in as much detail as we see so Anton's he's parked on the side of the road with a truck uh acting stranded and first guy that pulls over is driving a chicken truck he's got it it's a flatbed with a bunch of chicken coops full of chicken stacked up on the back of it and he's definitely a Texas good old boy. He's been there, born and bred. He even mentions, you know, in, in that town. Um, Anton starts grilling about airports. And the guy, in typical, you know, local Texas speak, he starts talking about airstrips and airports. And, you know, he and Anton just wants to know where the nearest airport is. And he finally gets it out of him that, you know, El Paso is the airport. If you want to go somewhere, El Paso is the airport you're going to go to. Um, so... <laughs> He then looks, he goes, okay, then I'm going to need you to take the chickens out of the truck. And I just love the deadpan nature of the way he says it. And the guy just looks at him like, what? Um, we don't see what happens next, except in the next scene, Anton is at a car wash cleaning the chicken feathers out of the empty flatbed. Mm-hmm. So we know Mr. Chicken Coop is gone. Um, it's unfortunate. Um, but he's not there anymore. So Anton's now got a, another vehicle. Um, things start to happen rapid fire. We're getting right to the end of the movie here, and things start flying left and right. Um, we are near the airport. We see a plane fly overhead. Um, 
Llewellyn is at the Desert Sands where he told uh, Carla Jean to meet him. Um, he's there. He's been waiting for Carla Jean. Um, he walks by the pool and he gets hit on by a very persistent beer girl. <laughs> yeah. She she's seen him at the at the at the the motel, and she's taken a fancy to him and she's had a few beers and she wants him so bad. And you know he he flirts with her, but he lets her know he's married. He's waiting for his wife and stuff. And uh, you know it's probably it's that good. flashy ass shirt he has on. Yeah, exactly, <laughs> exactly. Yeah, he picked up at the boot shop. Um, so again, rapid fire stuff. We cut from this like kind of adorable tension releasing scene into uh, the climax of the movie um, head first. So Ed Tom is driving towards the desert sands, um, and as he gets close. We hear, and I guess he hears, automatic gunfire. Um, he gets closer, and, you know, another one of those Mexican cartel, like, you know, SUVs goes hauling ass out into the street. There's a couple of dudes running, trying to get in the truck. They're taking off down the street. People are screaming. He flies into the lot. Um, as he gets out of his car, he sees Beer Girl floating face down in the pool. She's gone. Um, he runs up to Llewellyn's room and... The inevitable has happened. It's basically getting a punch in the stomach for the viewer. Uh, Llewellyn's on on the floor in his room and he's dead. Um, it sucks because it's very anticlimactic. And, yeah, I kind of you know, wanted to see that deleted scene. Yeah, I know. It, you know, it's funny because if you look back at the entire movie, one of the goals, one of Cormac McCarthy's goals and the Coen brothers' goals is to keep you off, just off balance. Yeah, and to also basically demonstrate that this is real life in the sense that it's not following, you know, the tropes that are attached to action movies or heist movies or drug runner movies. It's real life, and and shit can happen in the strangest ways. Mm-hmm. Um, so I mean, the bottom line is we never get that climactic showdown, the yeah. old west showdown between Anton and Llewellyn. I mean, Llewellyn's death happening off screen. Uh, we'll talk about this at the end, but it does tie into my theory about this movie. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay. All right. There's, there's... I, bet, I bet he wishes he didn't turn Beer Girl down now. <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> yeah, that's true. Well, there's also there's always that classic script that we all know, good guy and bad guy. At the end of the movie, good guy will meet bad guy for the showdown. And it always yeah. happens, and then it doesn't happen here. Right. Exactly. It's it's anticlimactic. It's it throws you off balance. You you start really seriously, you know, just thinking what the hell happened here. It's like there's no satisfaction, good, bad, or otherwise, for the main characters, you know, in this movie. Yeah. Um, but it's almost, real life. I almost expected "Don't Stop Believing" to start playing. Yeah, <laughs> there you go, and cut to cut to black. But you know, it goes back to the to the building with no name uh, scene in that. He says, Anton asks or confirms that they gave that company, whatever the fuck they are, gave the the cartel a tracker also. You know, back to that one useful tool, the useful tool or the best tool for the job, excuse me. You know, so that explains what happened. The cartel found him first. We know the tracker's gone, but they still found him first. Um yeah, it's just, it's definitely a punch in the stomach, you know, you're winded when you, when you see that scene, uh, you, you, you can't, I didn't have, I don't know, I, it was sort of a jaw-dropping thing for me, the first time I saw it, and even subsequent viewings. Mm-hmm. Um, this next scene is, is just utterly heartbreaking, um, and there aren't even any words spoken, 
Um, so it's night now. There's a full investigation on. There's cops everywhere, ambulances. Um, they're investigating the crime scene. Ed Thomas talking to the local sheriff there, and up pulls Carla Jean and her mom in the cab. And um, she gets out, hesitantly gets out of the cab, and Ed Tom sees her, and he he starts walking towards her. And I know Alex, you had some notes, so why don't you hit that if you can? Yeah, um, really like this scene that we're that we're about to approach here. Um, it is night. You got the sirens going off. I think it's a, a cab, right? That Carla Jean and yep. uh, pulls her, up in her, her mother dropped yeah. off. She gets out, and to me, this was—I mean, might be Kelly McDonald's best scene here. Um, I have exa- wrote down that this is an example of like saying everything while saying nothing. You know, Ed Tom, the removal of his hat and the way he looks at Carla Jean tells her everything that's happened. Just yes. great facial acting here. Um, just Car- uh, Carla Jean has this great subtlety, innocence, and sadness all at the same time here. She starts weeping. It's one of the shortest scenes. You, it's one of those things right. where it's like it's like a short song. You were like, oh, I want a little bit more of that song. Yeah. Yeah. You know, it would have been, but like there's just that perfect amount there, and everything is said when you know during nothing, and just you can see the heartbreak in her and. The fact that he has to deliver that news, exactly. even though he doesn't say anything, he's he, he's vested in their lives, and and again, it goes back to our our comments earlier about you know how much they love each other based on their dialogue and their interaction. Um, so I mean, it's an emotional gut punch for the viewer as well. Um, and you're right, it's it, it is that because those two folks are like top notch actors. I mean, it, it yeah. was that good. It, it, um, it, the scene's almost not long enough. For you to get yeah. choked up a bit, right? You know what I mean. Exactly. And, and it, the, the acting is so great in it, but it's just such a quick yeah. thing that happens. It's like essentially like they're in, they're out. It was perfect, you know. Yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah. We're still recovering from Llewellyn's death, and then this yeah. hits us. So you're right. You don't have time to catch your breath, and really, it doesn't register right away. Um, mm-hmm. So, yeah. So we jump to the morgue where uh, Ed Tom is looking over um, Llewellyn's body. And I love the fact that they do not show his face or his body. Like, you see it basically from behind Llewellyn's head, so so so, so speak, on the on the slab, and yeah. Ed Tom's looking at him. And I read that in the book, Ed Tom does not come up on the hotel. He doesn't see. His first viewing of Llewellyn is in the morgue. He identifies the body because Carla Jean isn't even there. Yeah. Yeah. This is, and again, so in both the hotel scene and in the morgue, going, uh, and again, I'm kind of directing this at Eric as well. This is kind of the only time that any of the three share the screen, so to speak, and one of them is not alive. Yeah. Right. You know, and you like, don't even see his face. Right. You, so in the person. in the yeah. morgue, they're not actually exchanging, and. When um, Ed Tom's running to the scene of the crime that had just happened as they're fleeing, and he gets to the blood pool right at the thing, like the camera shows it. But again, and I, we're stretching it a little bit, you know, the, it's so close to sharing the screen, but like there's not actual engaging conscious interaction between these three right. characters. Right. Exactly. Which just that, it's mind blowing for two hours of the three main actors that are all phenomenal actors and great characters and they just don't share the screen. It's like almost yeah. sounds like you're writing it into like a, this is going to be a bad movie or play. <laughs> yep. Yep. You know? uh, so, so yeah, Ed Tom leaves the morgue. He meets the local sheriff. Um, they go for a cup of coffee and 
they they have a second they have a conversation similar to Wendell and Ed Tom and you know how life sucks uh, in the coffee shop with the with the um, it's sort of kind of cliched in a sense that the old time the old timey Texas sheriff is moaning about the you know the long haired hippies and he doesn't say those words but that's basically what he's doing he's shaking his fist at the sky mm-hmm. as you know that things just turn to shit and you know I I appreciated Ed Tom's line in that you know once you stop hearing sir and ma'am the rest is soon to follow mm-hmm. so I mean he agrees with the guy but the guy's going off a little bit too much um, about it. Um, so then we got a, a closing clip between these two, a closing dialogue between these two, so you can roll it, Joe. None of that explains your man, though. Uh-uh. He's just a goddamn homicidal lunatic yet, Tom. I'm not sure he's a lunatic. Yeah, well, what would you call him? Yeah, sometimes I think he's pretty much a ghost. Uh, he's real, all right. Oh, yeah? Yeah, all of that over at the Eagle Hotel? <laughs> just beyond everything. Yeah. Got some hard bark on him. What? <laughs> Well, that don't hardly say it. He shoots a desk clerk one day, walks right back in the next, and shoots a retired army colonel. It's hard to believe. Just strolls right back into a crime scene. Now, who'd do such a thing? How do you defend against it? Well, good trip, Ed Tom. Sorry we couldn't help you, boy. Yeah, so... I love him. he's got some hard bark on him. Um, that's that's the scene to me where Ed Tom is the decision is made. This is just it's beyond him. Like he uh-huh. like he's previously talked about being overmatched. Yeah. You know, he's listening to the other sheriff, but he's really not. He you know, he, he just he knows this is it, you know. It it's it's past him and it, it, it goes it goes back to the title of the movie. This is the meaning of the title of the movie. No country for old men. He's the old man, and this is no country for him. And he realized it at that moment, to me anyway. And it's time to, to move on. Um, he can't help himself, though. He heads back to the hotel crime scene uh, one last time. It's at night. Um, he walks up to Llewellyn's door. The door's closed now, of course, because there's tape over it and stuff. And he immediately notices <laughs> what we've come to you know, know and love is the lock cylinder's blown out. So... He knows his man Anton is like he's either there or he was just there and he's missed him again or whatever. But this is the only time we see Ed Tom draw his pistol. And mm-hmm. uh, my understanding, if I remember correctly, it's a 1911-45. Um, see, I know my guns, Joseph. Back up. Right? <laughs> well, you know how to IMDb trivia. <laughs> Listen, I knew it. I knew it was a 45 by the size of it, so don't fuck with me. Right? The, the outer <laughs> diameter, you, you, the 45 is the inner diameter of the. Of the I, I understand, but you can also tell by the size of the gun. Okay, no, that's it's not bigger true. than a. It's bigger Be- than a Glock. No, it's bigger than a Glock because the the round is smaller in a Glock. That's not true because a Glock 17 and a Glock 21 are the exact same size, but one's a 45 ACP and the other's a nine millimeter. Okay, fine, Joe. You the only reason educate- I know is because I have a 21, which is a 45. And the 17 is the one that they issue to police officers, and it's a 9mm, but they're the exact same size overall dimension. Okay. Well, I got a double lasing repeater, so fuck you. <laughs> <laughs> I, got a, I got a noisy cricket, Joe. All right? <laughs> noisy cricket. <laughs> That's what I See, got. See, mine says .50 Desert Eagle, and yours says replica. Replica. Exactly. <laughs> yep. That's coming up. I am gonna uh, get a Desert Eagle though. That's 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 on my uh, my list. Of, that's cool. Of things to that's get. cool. Yeah, we can. You know what? This might be a good JSM topic because I got some I got some thoughts on the whole thing. 
and, and some things that I might be doing. So anyway, um, so yeah, so Ed Tom draws his weapon, and it's really cool what they do here. Um, it's so impressive that if you look in the lock cylinder, Ed Tom's looking in the lock cylinder, he sees Anton's reflection, or he sees a reflection. I stopped and freeze-framed this a few times, and to me it looks like he's seeing his own reflection because you can see his hat in the lock cylinder. I'm not sure. I couldn't find any trivia on it. So I don't know. I read. I think I read somewhere that Anton could see his reflection through the lock cylinder, or at least movement. But does anybody have anything on that? I I've got a little bit, and I, I can read here that I, I I won't go off too much on a tangent. But I can. There's a little. There. I mean, there's a lot here to unpack if you go down this route. Um, and actually, this might be fun for Eric too, as a first time watcher. Um, but yeah, here's my notes on this because this is kind of a big point of contention in the movie, especially in the fan world online. Right. Um, but here we go. So my notes are um, about when Ed Tom returns to the El Paso Motel. This is the first instance, as you mentioned, where we see him uh, take his sidearm. Um, so he receives a reflection of the lock cylinder that's been blown up by Anton. And now it, it's made to see that they're in the room, like he's in the room waiting behind the door. He's looking at ed tom ed tom's looking at anton they kind of you know it's never said but it's kind of implied that they're looking at each other because there's definitely movement there i imagine with the trajectory if you're looking at that cylinder you it's not mirroring back at you because it'd be kind of at like a 90 degree angle exactly exactly you know and um so i would say with so this i'd say it feels like anton is in the room some people say maybe he's in the next room and he blew up multiple locks but it, they're kind of making you think that they're kind of in a standoff right now or calling his bluff, if you will. So right. Anton sees a reflection of Ed Tom. So this is another game of chance with uh, Anton, just like the coin type of thing. Now, as we've seen, when people make a call, generally, as with that gla- gas station clerk, he called, he survived. So Ed Tom calls, enters the room, Anton isn't there. Now, remember back when uh, Wendell and Ed Tom opened up the door. They let it hit all the way before entering. Yeah. So Ed Tom does the exact same thing here when he enters the room. The camera pans across um, the back wall of the room, um, and it shows Ed Tom's shadow being cast from the lights outside. However, there are two different light sources, you know, possibly one's from the mirror, and the two silhouettes are cast on the wall. And now there's a fan theory, and I kind of put this together if you want to go off the fan theory, that Anton and Ed Tom are the same person. Huh. So this, that's, this that's so that's, <laughs> yeah, this is a theory because the names are very similar. They don't share the screen. When he opened the door, he wasn't actually there. But there's, then there's also the whole thing of like, maybe it was different timing. The, the directors are making you think that he was there. So I don't necessarily subscribe to this theory that they're the same person, as in, like, physically, but maybe different timelines. But the Coen brothers don't do that. It's not a Christopher Nolan movie. Yeah, exactly. You know? So so it's just a... a, To me, I chalk it up to... It's kind of a fun theory if you want to work it that way. But I don't think that they are. And, again, when you open the door, freezing the frame, I don't see him there. Well, I, I... I tell you what I drew from it. For me, it was a callback to that, the television reflection, right? Yes, yes. Because they missed the killer by this much, and they're both sitting there sort of 
taking in their reflection. And and for me, thematically, this whole movie is really about the ine- inevitability of death. And right. if and if sugar represents death, and uh, you know you've got the sheriff sort of representing the the fear of death or the acceptance of death. Um, it may not be that he was even in the room, but that he just saw the looming presence of death in what he was about to go do, which was open the door. Hmm. Yeah, that that makes sense to me then. Yeah, definitely. Um, I mean, so, yeah, no, go ahead. Oh, no, I, was, I didn't mean to bring the whole room down. <laughs> well, no, um, no, that's okay. There's another piece there, too, I was when I was reading into it, like, Remember I mentioned the two shadows and that whole playing on that theory that they're the same person, but I guess um, what I was reading, I haven't, I didn't go back to this one scene I should have, that you'll see the caution tape, that line there, makes a ca- cast a shadow and it's there. And then after he checks the bathroom and comes back, that that tape is broken. So people are thinking that's when Anton left. Ah, that so makes yeah. a lot of sense. That does make sense. Okay. Yeah, that's probably All the right. most practical option. Yeah. <laughs> he snuck yep. out. So anyway, in the end, yeah, he, he examines the room. Uh, he sits down on the bed basically, to, you know, to take a breath. Um, and he turns around, looks behind himself, and sees the vent has been opened. There's a dime on the floor. So we definitely know Anton was there at one point. Um, and that sort of pieces things together for Ed Tom as far as, you know, where the money may have been hidden, things like that, because um, there's still no money, obviously. Um, so Ed Tom is now... He heads to his to his uncle Ellis's house. Um, you know the IMDb cast list, and straight up, they never really identify who Ellis is. But if you look it up and read the book, it's his uncle, so it's his father's brother. Um, he was also a sheriff. Uh, we get in there, and it's a, there's a kind of humorous exchange about how you knew I was coming. I deduced it. <laughs> um, you know, how'd you know it was my truck and stuff? Did the cats tell you? Because you know, he's got a lot of cats, and, and Ed Tom even asked Ellis how many you got. He goes, several. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that reminded me of, uh, I don't know, Breaking Bad when you get, uh, you got Bill Burr and, and Yule. I don't know, I forget Bill Burr's character's name. And Bill Burr asks him, hi, you know, are you happy? And and Yule goes, reasonably. <laughs> it's just, it's a stupid throw line, but it's funny. He goes, how many cats you got now? Several. Mm-hmm. Um, he's in a, Ellis is in a wheelchair. Um, so, I mean, the bottom line with this scene is that Ed Tom's there to basically get Ellis's approval for retiring. I mean, he wants to retire, but he respects his uncle, um, basically been a father figure for him because his father passed away. We find out not too long from now, father passed away, you know, young. Um, you know, Ed Tom was, was an adult and a, and a sheriff at the same time, but um, he lost his father to a, a murder as well. So, you know, there's a couple of points we find out, you know, he asked about, you know, or Ed Tom asked Ellis, you know, or reminds him that the guy who put him in the wheelchair died in prison, you know, and even asked him, what, what would you have done if he got out? And, and, you know, he doesn't, Ellis doesn't really know what he'd do. Um, in the beginning of the movie, in the narration, Ed Tom does mention that, you know, his grandfather was a sheriff too. You know, he talk about that. Um, and Ed Tom you know, mentioned that, you know, or Ellis actually says that Loretta told him that he's quitting. And Ed Tom says, yeah, he's quitting because he, he feels overmatched and it's time. And I believe this is where he also says that, you know, he, he thought 
that as he got closer to retirement, he'd get closer to God, and that's not happening. And it's concerning him, I think, obviously, as, as a, you know, a man of God. So um, they tell a quick story about Uncle Max getting gunned down by some local Indians um, and such. Um, it's just, you know, it's, it's sort of an emotional scene. It, it, it misses for me a bit because I think there's, there's apparently way more in the book about Uncle Ellis and there's more of a connection. So I think they try to tie it up at the end of, and, again, basically get, you know, Ed Tom being comfortable with, with retiring is the bottom line. Um, I think I'm, uh, like, 14 years after this movie came out, I think I'm still kind of working on this scene. Yeah. For me um, to understand. Because I think there's a lot of, again, without knowing too much about the book, there's I feel like there's probably a lot of subtext here, things that are going to mean other things. Yeah. Um, but yeah. I think a lot of it is also just a sign of him acknowledging that he's quitting and right. he's going to see somebody to tell them and just kind of going back to a familiar family person. Yeah. He he still he, he does feel guilty about quitting. You know, he's he's set on it, he's doing it, but he does have a little bit of guilt and he's going there again for that approval from from his uncle. So mm-hmm. uh yeah. So uh the next scene is uh is a tough one too. Um it 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 opens on a shot of the um, to, of a tombstone, and I just looked it up. And uh, her mama's first name is Agnes. Agnes Krasik is her name. Um, so yes, yeah, uh, Carla Jean's mom has passed away of I think a heart attack. Um, so we see them putting her in the ground, um, and Carla Jean heads home. Um, she enters the house, and you know. She's sort of beside herself because she lost her mom, but then she sees that Anton is there waiting for her. So, Joe, roll that clip. Maybe this one I'm done with. I ain't got the money. What little I had is long gone, and there's bills aplenty to pay it. I buried my mother today. Ain't paid for that neither. I wouldn't worry about it. I need to sit down. You got no cause to hurt me. No. But I gave my word. You gave your word? To your husband. That don't make sense. You gave your word to my husband to kill me? Your husband had the opportunity to save you. Instead, he used you to try to save himself. Not like that. Not like you say. You don't have to do this. People always say the same thing. What do they say? They say, you don't have to do this. You don't. Okay. This is the best I can do. Call it. I know 
thought you was crazy when I saw you sitting there. I know exactly what was in store for me. Call it. No. I ain't gonna call it. Call it. The coin don't have no say. It's just you. I got here the same way the coin did. Yeah. Um, you know, she sort of puts him in her in his place with the coin, saying the coin ain't got no say. Um, you know, doesn't mean anything. Um as Anton leaves the house, he he checks his boots mm -hmm. um, to see if there's any blood on him, which tells us that, you know, he did yeah. the deed, that mm -hmm. Carla Jean's dead. There's no question about it. Um, again, her and her husband both die off screen. Right. Yep. You know? And, yeah, exactly. And the boots come up again. And again, it's one of those things where, like, it could be ambiguous, like, did she, like, the chance of the coin, did she die or not? You know, I think I like to root that she survived, but type of, but it's like he looked at the boots implying yeah. because the Carson Wells thing and right everything boots related. Yeah, exactly. So I I would say that she's she's dead. Mm -hmm. Um. So yeah, it's soul sucking. Uh. You know, because she's such a good character, but you know, mm -hmm. it's it's inevitable in the context of the story. So, um, we now you know we're at the end here. Um. We we get Anton driving in his car. Uh, away from the scene and you know he's he, he notices some kids behind him riding their bicycles and then he looks back and he's got a green light ahead and he you know goes through the intersection and then you know gets t-boned um which is also jarring and if you're not paying attention scare the shit out of you when it happens <laughs> yeah um you know so it's the end of the movie you're, you're sort of a very tranquil quiet scene and boom he gets t-boned um you know, to put it bluntly, he gets fucked up. <laughs> he gets out of that car and he's limping, you know, um, and, he, and he staggers over to the curb and he sits down. And um, he, uh, the kids, the two kids on the bike roll up uh, to him. And <laughs> the one kid is so funny. He, he's like, mister, you got a bone sticking out your arm. <laughs> and he's obsessed. It's like, it's like the, the, the Brad on the bridge being obsessed with the car accident, right? Yeah. It's this kid's obsessed with the bone. He keeps talking about the bone sticking out your arm. <laughs> and that kid is, it, he was in the X-Men movies, the, um, uh, first class. He huh. played the, he played the Sonic. I don't know the, the character's name. The one that, that, the, the one that kept burning the mannequins up in the tunnel. He was trying to, he would shoot the beam from his chest, whoever he is. Oh, he, uh, no, no, no. It wasn't him. No, it wasn't him. I'm sorry. It's the kid who could fly. The kid oh. who could fly with the sonic waves out of his mouth. Uh, Banshee. Banshee. Yeah, yeah, all right. So that that kid, the actor, plays plays Banshee. You're like right on it together. <laughs> yeah, I know, right? He's like pulling teeth. Too bad sorry. they didn't uh, put the best X-Men ever in X-Men. <laughs> yeah, all right. Yes, I know. We, we, we. <laughs> One of, these on. one of these days I know one of these days it's gonna happen um, I, I really like uh, with the kid that gives him his shirt to make like a uh, a little like splint or whatever yeah. like a little uh, sling a little sling there I love when he's 
putting his Anton's putting his arm in the sling. The yeah. kid that's obsessing, I love he delivers this line. Look at that fucking bone. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Yeah, he's, it's just I heard, laser uh, focus, man. I, I heard Brooke Shields said that in the airport once. Yeah, no, yeah, that's right. She did. She was very impressed. All right, I'll leave it at that. All right. Me and Brooke Shields in the Concord Lounge. That's all I got to say. <laughs> and then I woke up. Ah, and then all right. had your hand in a curry purse. Exactly. Yep. I woke up and said, ain't no way. <laughs> and curry purse is not a euphemism. <laughs> Don't even talk about the curry purse, please. All right. Uh, so, yeah. So Anton offers the kids money. Takes the, he gets the kid's shirt. shirt gives him, kid gives him the shirt for free. Uh, he fashions a, 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 a sling and, and you know, moves his arm in there. Um, he gives the kid 100 bucks, and he just says, you never saw me. You just, they need, he needs the kids to shut up. Um, so he gets up and walks off as the two kids are arguing because the, the bone kid wants part of the, you know, he wants part of the money too. And he's like, well, you didn't give your shirt. <laughs> well, or you still got your shirt, he says to the kid. Even at the end, like you see – Anton walking off into the distance and the two kids on the bike they're fighting over it and again that theme comes up that we haven't really talked about but everybody's fighting over money here yeah even the kids you're right even the kids at the very end are fighting over the money yeah and apparently not to spoil the book but again I haven't read it but I did I did read that in the novel we do find out that towards the end that Anton is working for someone not I, they, that's the way they phrase it. I don't know if that means we don't know specifically who. And he he has the money, and he actually returns the money to his employer. Hmm. Um, so I am I'm I'm interested in reading the book to find out how that pans out in the in the book as well. So um, we come up to our final scene, and um, it almost is like "Don't Stop Believing" fade to black in a way that happens here. Um, it's it's more uh, acceptable and resolvable. Than, than the Sopranos ending, although I know what happened in, in the Sopranos, we can talk about that another time. Um, but we're going to roll the clip, and this is the final scene in the movie, and it is also the actual final page in the book. Maybe I'll go riding. Okay. What do you think? Well, I can't plan your day. I mean, would you care to join me? Lord, no, I'm not retired. Maybe I'll help out here then. Uh, better not. How'd you sleep? I don't know. I had dreams. Well, you got time for them now. Anything interesting? There always is to the party concerned. And Tom, I'll be polite. All right, then. Two of them. Both had my father in them. It's peculiar. I'm older now than he ever was by 20 years. So, in a sense, he's the younger man. Anyway, the first one I don't remember too well, but it was about meeting him in town somewhere. and so he gave me some money. I think I lost it. The second one, it was like we was both back in the older times. And I was a horseback going through the mountains of the night, going through this pass in the mountains. It was cold and there was snow on the ground. He rode past me and kept on going, never said nothing going by, just rode on past. He 
had his blanket wrapped around his head down. When he rode past, I seen he was carrying fire and a horn the way people used to do. And I, I could see the horn from the light inside of it about the color of the moon. And in the dream, I knew that he was going on ahead. He's fixing to make a fire somewhere out there in all that dark and all that cold. And I knew that whenever I got there, he'd be there. And then I woke up. And that's the end of the movie. Um, yeah, yeah, it was jarring for sure. <laughs> yeah, you know. Uh, it was interesting. I remember watching it the first time. It was obviously taken aback by the way it ended. Um, not surprised because it's Coen Brothers, but um, it's it's a really interesting way to end the movie. And I don't know what are people's thoughts on on the two dreams. What do we got? Man, I just I I keep coming back to this movie. Feels like it's about death. I mean, obviously there is a lot of death, um, but this sort of brings it all around you know back to the beginning for me where he's he's talking about his father um you know who obviously has died years and years ago uh sort of going on ahead and you know lighting a fire against this darkness and he's going to be there waiting for him so he's sort of accepting that he's on near the end of his own path as far as his life goes and he's he's getting closer to death and closer to leaving uh you know, shuffling loose a mortal coil, if you will. And, yeah. And, uh, yeah, so it, it very much felt like he was, he was you know, speaking about death and coming to terms with death in, in, that, in that final scene. Um, for me, the, the whole movie um, felt like an allegory for um, just the relentlessness of death and doing everything you can to avoid it. Um, but it's, again, I use this word as a pun because of Josh Brolin, but inevitable. Yes. Um, So, and, and like I said, you know, he was certainly the craftiest character that, that Anton had ever come up against. So he Mm -hmm. threw a lot more obstacles in his way, but ultimately it didn't matter. Like death, death came for him anyway. Right. Unstoppable force. Yeah. Unstoppable force. So, yeah. you know, if the allegory is like, man, I, I ate right and exercised, and but, you know, I, I got a cancer diagnosis in, in my 40s. You know, like just the, the way that life is unpredictable and unfair and it's chance and it's circumstance. And, uh, you know, the Coens and obviously the book that this movie was based on seem to do a really good job of encapsulating that, uh, that anxiousness about uh, life and death. Right, right. Yeah, I agree. I agree about the the inevitability of death, especially with the second dream. I also think it it sort of helps Ed Tom come to grips with the retirement in the fact that he knows that, yeah, his time might be short or not, but that he made the right decision and that at the end, whenever the end comes, he'll be protected, whether it's from by his father or, or whatever, that he, he's made the right choice. Um I wasn't sure about the first part, the first dream, but then read some stuff on it, But and, and I sort of agree with the stuff that I read in the sense that, you know, Etam almost dismisses that dream as he can't remember 
you know, much of it. So it's not really, you know, weighing on him too much. But it's basically about the fact that he never recovered the money. You know, he lost the money, uh, you know, in his final case. Um, and that's why he doesn't talk about it much. He focuses on the second part. So, um, yeah, I, I think so. Yeah, I think uh, Eric kind of had a good summary on it. Um, yeah. Definitely, definitely agree with him. I, w- I will, um, one thing I did forget to point out towards the end with uh, Carla Jean is that, remember I mentioned that he, that uh, Anton, our unstoppable force here, he had switched into these burgundy pants? Yeah. Um, in the scene with Carla Jean, after Llewellyn dies, he's back into black pants. Yeah. Okay. All so right. I know I know boots are the theme here, but uh, there's also yeah, there's, that as well. There's definitely some pants shenanigans going on as well. Yeah. We'll have to, we'll have to pants, look into that. I think they're trying to like they're trying to get some action, even though the boots are stealing the stealing the scene. Um, but yeah, and Eric, I think you had mentioned it that um, when we were talking about the lack of music in this, once it cuts to black, you then start actually hearing some credits because I think it's noted that there's in the in the entire movie which is about two hours there's only 16 minutes of music right and most of it is in the end credits and the singing bowl stuff which again you have to kind of actively be listening for because there's like otherwise you'd go there's no music in this yeah you know and and another thing that's interesting too and i think the coen brothers intentionally do this and i'm sure a lot of movies have done as well to not have any distractions or anything to clutter it and keep it clean, you don't see credits until the end of the movie. Right. There's no opening credits. There's no words on screen during the monologue. There's nothing to distract you from the landscape. It isn't until it cuts to black that you see the title of the movie and mm. then all of the production and stuff yeah. there. Yeah, they I didn't even that. notice that, but that true. They keep yeah. that out, they keep it out of the way because you want the focus to be... Uh, Ed Tom, because he kind of is the glue here for everything. He's one of the main characters, and you want that landscape, as we mentioned in the beginning, that classic Western vibe. You don't want to see it, you know, you don't want to see names on the screen during that. You don't want to see, like, you know, all that stuff that comes up at the beginning, you know, yeah, casting, definitely you know. definitely is not a Tarantino pick. Yeah. No. <laughs> no. Right? Where it's nope. the Wild West, and then Rick Ross comes on, I go to yeah. 100 <laughs> Black Coffins. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, it doesn't work, but... yeah. Uh, that they keep it out of the way because they they're they're getting to it right away. So. Yeah, yeah. All right. But. So, yeah. So we're at the end now. Um, I guess it's ratings time. So Joe, you want to? Yeah, let's do it. Hit that button. I am a movie critic by trade, and until recently, I got paid to tell you people which movies merely stink and which ones you shouldn't screen near an open flame. Well, I'm putting the burden of lousy movies back on you. It's very simple. If you stop going to bad movies, they'll stop making bad movies. If the movie used to be a TV show, just don't go. After Roman numeral two, give it a rest. If it's a remake of a classic, rent the classic. Tell them you want stories about people, not a hundred million dollars of stunts and explosives. People, it's up to you. If the movie stinks, just don't go. It stinks. It stinks. It stinks. It stinks. Are you not entertained?
and Alex, real time. quick, we just did an episode with with Brian and Kyle from the Tone Jerks. We did the movie The Mask, and yeah, it was very appropriate because at the end of that, you hear Jim Carrey saying, yeah. "They love me, they really love me." <laughs> so it was extra appropriate for that. But nice. um, all right, yeah. So you know what? Let's start with our guest of honor, Alex. Uh, let let's hear what your rating is on this, and you can give us a description as to why. Um, so as I mentioned at the top of the episode, and the reason I reached out about doing it was, or that you guys should do it before you offered to have me on, was that this was my number one movie. So there's definitely a bias here. Mm-hmm. Um, so you know, taking into account acting, how it's portrayed. Um, scenery, landscape, how the movie's cut together, um, how strong the movie is when there is dialogue, even though oftentimes there isn't dialogue. I was kind of worried about this episode of like, hey, there's a lot of not dialogue here, and you can't play stuff for our for our fellow listeners. Um, given all of that. Um, the jarringness of the movie, how it goes places you're not expecting it to go. It doesn't fulfill those stereotypes. Um, the cinematography is great. And also keeping in the reality of a world of like that idea that perfect isn't achievable, I'll go 4.9. Yeah, totally right. respectable and understandable. Um, I, I went through the same thing when we did Cool Hand Luke because that's my favorite movie of all time. Yeah, you know, and I'm the asshole hard. that... And I'm the asshole that gave Idiocracy a five. (laughs) (laughs) You know, to each their own. Not everything's for everyone. And that's what this whole show is about. um, All right. So, Eric, first time viewer. What do we got, buddy? This is fun for... I I feel like this is fun because as the person, not to cut you off, Eric, as the person that's like, this is my movie, it's fun to like meet a person that has seen it once, you know, like, and talk about it because it's so fresh. It's like... I would have liked to been there when you watch it for the first time and just glance into your eyes at the end. What do you think? Yep. <laughs> it's like watching Game of Thrones with someone who's never seen it before. Right. Yeah. 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 First time. I, I didn't really know what to expect other than I, I understood that this movie had some pedigree, you know, and it's just yeah. something that flew under my radar for for a couple of years. Um, but it had me hooked from the from the jump. Like it was a very engaging movie. It's not one of those that you know it felt like a slow burn that took a while to get sucked into. Um, you know, right from the opening, I was in. So that's that's a magic trick in and of itself. Like if you can just grab my attention and and like I said, going in blind, knowing nothing about the uh, the plot or who's in it or you know, yeah, I was I was very impressed with this film. Um, the the pacing, the editing, the directing, it was all top tier. I understand why it's so revered um, after seeing it. So, and and like I said, it it not only was it well crafted, but there seemed to be so much going on beneath the surface, um, and so much to theorize about. And and I mean, this is one of those films that you could go back and rewatch and say, man, in that final scene with the uh, with Tommy Lee Jones, he's sitting next to a statue of a bird. Remember when you know uh, Anton tried to shoot the bird, but he missed the bird. What does it all mean? I'm into those kind of, uh, you know, exercises and symbolism. So yep. uh, I 100% loved it. I would give it a 4.6 out of 5. Nice. Well-deserved. Well-described and, and a well-deserved rating. I get it. Um, Joe, what do you got, man? 
All right, so we all know from this this long show we've been doing here, I have a certain affinity for certain types of movies over certain other types of movies. I like asinine, stupid, um, <laughs> random bullshit movies versus things that are serious and, you know, I have to really pay attention and put up with a bunch of nonsense. Um, that being said... I do really appreciate the cast they put together and the way they acted in this movie. It was very, very fucking real. It felt real. It didn't feel like that they were acting. It felt like this was like I was watching real people like in stumble across events. The The level of uh, attention to detail they put into this was also phenomenal. Um, and just the, the dirty grittiness of it felt authentic. Um, now... I would have gone somewhere in the mid three range on this if it wasn't for the fact that I watched another movie today that just made this movie seem way better. <laughs> so, so the recency bias of me watching such a terrible movie before I watched this one today has bumped my score up to about a 4.2. <laughs> yes. You got to be the Russian judge and leave room for the lower score. Okay. Yeah, yeah, because because I, I mean, if I had just watched this only today, I probably would have been in like the mid threes. But because the other movie I watched before this was so bad, it made me appreciate this way more. <laughs> yep, I get it. I get it. Uh, yeah, that makes sense. So four point two from Joe. Um, so that leaves me um, pretty much what they all said. <laughs> There's not much else I can say. I totally dug this movie when I saw it in theaters in 2007. Um, and I dug it more and appreciate it even more now being able to dissect it and, and, and look up the, 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 the innuendo and, and, the, and the trivia and the facts and stuff and just how well crafted it is. Um, I, I, I can't profess my love for the Coen brothers any more than I have. Their movies are genius. I can't believe at the beginning of the show I didn't even mention Raising Arizona because that was the movie that got me hooked on the mm -hmm. Coen brothers because that's amazing in and of itself. Um, so, yeah, the Coen brothers, uh, Cormac McCarthy, it's a match made in heaven. Um, I can't really find much wrong with this movie. So I, you know, it's definitely in my probably in my top 10. And I didn't even know it until I rewatched it this week because it's so good. So I am going to put it at a 4.7 because it does mean that much to me. Um, there's, you know, as I said, and to stop rambling in a second, but even even my connection on a personal level to you know the the Llewellyn and Carla Jean relationship because it reminds me of my relationship with my wife it meant a lot so yeah 4.7 good good scores do uh you know when uh Joe was mentioning cast um or casting do any of you guys maybe Doug you know do you know the story of uh a quick story of Josh Brolin's audition for this yes i do of his tape and yep that it was while he was filming grindhouse yeah yeah so so for eric and uh joe uh he was filming grindhouse he was a fan of cormac's novel found out the coen brothers were doing it wanted to be in a coen brother film but he was in another part of texas doing grindhouse with quentin tarantino and he was like i want to make an audition tape and uh quentin tarantino got with robert rodriguez and Robert Rodriguez had this million-dollar camera, and it was like, why don't we just film one at lunch? So on, on lunch break, Quentin Tarantino directed Josh Brolin's uh, 
audition tape for Llewellyn Moss for the Coen Brothers and had uh, uh, Robert Rodriguez do the lighting and everything for it, and they sent uh, they sent it over to the Coens, and they said no. Holy shit! <laughs> and it, it it's been joked about that it's the most expensive audition tape ever made. Yeah. yeah. And uh, I guess Josh Brolin's manager was like persistent. It was like you got to meet with this guy in person. So it was the very last audition, and Josh Brolin went in there, and he did some lines in front of the Coen Brothers and got to meet them. And then that was the last audition of the day that they were ever doing for the casting, and they said that you got it because they were there in person. And Josh Brolin was like. You don't need to spend all this money on the you know audition tape. Just do it in Final Cut. And I just love that story. They did it on lunch yes. during Grindhouse, yeah, and know. directed by Quentin Tarantino. <laughs> it's so good. It's so good. And I know we, we want to wrap this up, but you just reminded me of another piece of cool trivia, really quick. So uh, there will be blood was filming in the same town at the same time as this yep. one. Uh, the scenes that they did in Texas in a town in Texas. Um, they actually had to stop shooting for a day on, on this film because there was a huge explosion scene in There Will Be Blood and the, and the, the, the plume, the, the cloud was so large, mm-hmm. it was showing up in every shot that the Coen brothers tried to do. So they mm-hmm. had to wait a day for it to clear. Appropriately, <laughs> appropriately enough, another one of my favorite movies with what a great actor with some great scenes in it too. yeah absolutely Maybe someday that's one we do yeah 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 definitely definitely so um yeah all right it's getting late so my brain's foggy but we're <laughs> gonna wrap this up so we're gonna do some quick plugs right joe am i on track here yep okay plugs good is, <laughs> plugs is the next the next thing up yeah all right perfect so uh alex plug away man Real quick Quick plug on your on your wonderful business. No, make it a long plug. We don't need yeah. a quick plug. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah. So if um, if people are uh, fans of guitar pedals, which there's a good chance they are, if they're here with uh, Joe or Doug, or art in general with everybody here, um, you know we make uh, guitar pedals. You can find us on social media platforms on our website coppersoundpedals.com. We recently had. Um, a release with uh, Third Man Records, the uh, Jack White-owned company in Nashville and Detroit, called the Triple Graph, and um, yeah, we just uh, we've been plugging away at uh, all of these devices that we've uh, got in our heads and creating them, and that's just really what we've been doing. And uh, we're always looking to uh, do custom work with people and engage with people and. We have a lot of great uh, fans out there, a lot of great people that we've worked with. Um, so if you're into that type of thing, you know, please check us out and uh, hopefully you enjoy what you see and uh, maybe we can uh, work together. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. I can attest to that. Um, I mean, Alex and I are, are local to each other, and he's been a, a beyond a tremendous help, you know, helping me get off the ground with stuff. And uh, with ideas and basically a mentorship. I mean, I, I couldn't ask for a cooler person to hang with and bounce ideas off of and uh, help me along this path. So, um, you know, you're you're a great dude, and I'm so happy that we got to do this with you tonight. Absolutely. Um, that's it. Dude, I'm looking I'm so- at your your website. Not to cut you off, talk, but man, yeah. these are cool. You I know, it, aren't yeah, they? It, yeah. It's like next level stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Check this out the, the website, coppersoundpedals.com. 
I'm seeing stuff that looks like a Fender Stratocaster. Yeah, right. Like, come yeah. on, man. That's that's wicked. I know it's crazy stuff. It's crazy stuff from from a genius group of people. Uh, the whole crew at Copper Sound. I can't say enough about those folks. Um, anyway, uh, yeah. So that said, uh, my my uh, my company, um, Thirty Seven Effects. That's the word thirty number seven fx dot com. Um, I I only have one pedal right now. I'm I'm hopefully soon close to my second release, the Tombstone Treble Boost. Um, my pedal out there now is the Fat Guy Little Coat Fuzz. So you can see the movie theme. So this, you know, hmm. that was that theme was created before this podcast. But you know, I obviously have an affinity for uh, for watching movies and respecting movies, and and you know, they're a big part of my life personally. So I like that to reflect in my art and work. Uh, so yeah, check out thirty seven effects dot com. Um, for your pedal needs Joe uh, I make a bunch of random shit you can step on and make noises <laughs> with that looks pretty <laughs> it's and called that, like, my, like my pedals <laughs> exactly and you know in the best way that sums that up because that's what your stuff is it's great solidly beautifully built but it's random bullshit <laughs> no but it dude you, you offer such a, a great variety of different types of pedals and they and all I will sound tell you, great it's not it's not the way i should have done it no i, I do built, i should have followed the, the tried and true method of just building something normal and building a yeah. bunch of it and making money instead of making myself have headaches every day no i know dude I'm, I'm with you there i mean it's a learning every day is a learning day but yeah like my pedals man check them out because joe's stuff is great and then, of course, you know, you can always find me and Doug with uh, two other idiots on Just Surprise Me podcast. <laughs> yeah, we are a fucking definite collection of idiots, but uh, that's a different kind of podcast. But you know what? I, I look forward to that every time we record because it's the, these dudes are funny and they're fun and they're cool to hang out with. So please join us on Just Surprise Me as well. Oh, yeah. I like to refer to it as the shit show. Yeah, it is. It is. The, it's a shit show. And, you know, I went into this thing as a part time host into that thing thinking I was going to be the one who cleaned up the shit show. Fuck that. I'm, I'm, I'm neck deep in that shit right now, <laughs> but I'm having the best time doing it. So yeah, check us out. And, uh, last but not least, uh, Mr. Eric Pabone, please describe your work. Hey, yeah. You can find me at art of Eric Pabone, P A B O N.com. Uh, I am an artist and if you need some custom art or you just want to peruse the, uh, artwork that I have available, uh, anything from Star Wars and uh, comic books to uh, abstract, and I'm just trying to grow and learn and do some new and different things um, while celebrating my inner child. So that is where I'm at. Uh, I'm not sure when this episode is going to drop, but there's going to be some more shows and comic book conventions in the uh, upcoming months now that things are getting a little more uh, social. You know, still distanced and masked and uh, lots more shots going around. And and hopefully I'll be getting the first round of mine soon because I am a frontline medical worker. So uh, looking forward to that. But, yeah, that's all I got for you. Yeah, and I'll just quickly continue the cheerleading because Eric's stuff is next level. Um, I've got some of it. I'm going to be getting more because I want it on my walls. Um, I love Eric's style. I love the quality. I can't say enough things, good things about um, his stuff. So please, artofericpabone.com. Oh, Check yeah. it out. 
Um, look, and you you could use him for like vendettas also. Exactly, yeah, anything true. you need, man, it, 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 he'll do it for you. He'll they specialize you, you, in spite art, you know. You, yeah. you pay your spite art. You pay the money, you get the art. That's the way it works. Um, Can you uh, draw a picture of me with a bag of chocolate covered pretzels, and then RJ, Will, and Doug lined up to shake my hand? Hundred yeah, <laughs> percent. Right. Yes, but Ma- yeah, Morris. so it's all cool, man. We yeah. Anyway. Um, I've already said it. I had the best time tonight. We've all talked. We were even chatting off air a bit, but we've all had the best time. This was such a great episode. It was long. It's definitely going to be a long one, but it, it's time well spent as far as I'm concerned, and I think yeah. you know everybody will appreciate it. Um, it was so good. It really was. Alex, thank you again. Um, this has been great. We'll definitely do it again. We'll figure out another flick to check out because uh, your insights were like so spot on, and you brought so much to the table, buddy. I, I can't thank you enough. Oh yeah. yeah, really and, appreciate you guys having me. Yeah, it was awesome. I'm I'm so happy we we did this episode and gave it the you know the time it deserved for it. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. On the next episode of Masters of the Cinematic Universe, uh, we got a movie coming up that none of us had ever heard of before. <laughs> yeah, this is correct. Search and destroy. We're gonna dive into uh, what what to say about it. Yeah, we, we all. Gonna, we're going to search for a plot and destroy all our hopes. Exactly. <laughs> but we are we are going to give you a reason to listen in that the cast includes yeah. Christopher Walken, um, Griffin Dunn, Martin Scorsese, um, uh, Ethan Dennis Hawk, Hopper. Dennis Hopper, uh, Ileana Douglas, who I've always had a crush on, love her and anything she does. Yeah. Um, the cast is stellar. Yeah. And but, the acting is good. Yeah. Is good. There's just a lot wrong. And I think, you know, I'll, as a little sneak peek, a lot of it has to do with the uh, all the rage of cocaine use in New York in the 90s. <laughs> the cocaine fueled the making of this movie. And we'll right. leave it at that for now. And yeah. we will. So you got something to look forward to anyway. We don't want to scare the words you off. Of Rick James, cocaine is one hell of a drug. Hell yes. And, and, yeah, so anyway, uh, you got something to look forward to. I think it's going to be a cool episode. And we do have a guest on that one, too. Yes, we do. We The guest the guest is uh, Todd Novak from The Guitar Knobs, one of my favorite, if not my favorite podcasts. It's the first gear-related podcast I ever listened to that got me back into things and actually is a big influence into why I started building pedals because of the guests they have. So we're super excited to, ha- to have Todd with us, and this is a movie that he adores. Uh because of its bee schlockiness, he admits that. And, uh, yeah, we're ready to do it. So we're very excited to, to do an episode with Todd. Yep. And uh, if you ever want to listen to the worst episode of his show, listen to the one I was on. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's funny because Joe bust, bust my balls about never shutting up. But you listen to that episode, you wouldn't know that there were three hosts of a podcast. And yeah, I got this kind of bad habit where I take over the podcast that I'm on. Yeah, yeah. Except He's for working this one. on it. He's working on I it. Shut, I shut up and let them do all the work. Exactly. I just kind of sit back and cash in on the glory. You're working on it, Joe. Just like I worked on it, you're working on it. So anyway, uh, yeah, let's wrap it up. All right, guys. Well, you know, we like to do this the same way every time with a good round of lights. Camera. Fuck. Oh,